Consider the local edition only on Radio Catskill. Welcome to the local edition. News and information keeping you connected in the Catskills, Northeast Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Jason Dole. And coming up tonight, a story on why many New York dairy workers may fall into a regulatory gray area and OSHA can't even help. Plus, County Manager Josh Potosik talks about the 2024 Sullivan County budget. We're also going to have our weekly news roundup from the Sullivan County Democrat with the latest local news. First up, we're going to start with news out of Albany. Ambulance companies in New York say a new law signed by Governor Kathy Hochul will help their struggling industry get needed resources to better respond to emergency calls. Karen DeWitt has the details. The law will ensure that ambulance companies that transport a sick or injured person to a hospital will now be directly paid for that service from that person's insurance company. Jeffrey Call, who's chair of the state's United Ambulance Network, also heads Guilfoyle Ambulance Service in Watertown, New York. He says while that might seem like a small change, it will end millions of dollars in lost payments to ambulance services. Call says when someone who lives, say, in Albany gets sick in Buffalo or on Long Island and needs an ambulance, that service can be considered out of network by some insurance companies. When you call 911, there is no pre-screening for uh, what kind of insurance do you have or are you in or out of our network. But the ambulance companies still need to be paid for their services. Previously, the insurance company would mail the payment directly to the person who used the ambulance. And Call says often that money never made it to the ambulance company. For many, many years, uh, if you were out of network, uh, most private insurance companies would send the check to the patient or the customer. And in some cases, those checks got lost in the mail. In some cases, those checks got cashed and the bills didn't get paid. So what this law does is it makes the insurance company mail the check to the ambulance provider versus the patient. Call estimates the change will mean an additional $100,000 a year in payments to his company, which completes twelve to 15,000 service calls a year. He says the money is greatly needed at a time when volunteer ambulance companies are struggling to find enough drivers and EMTs to properly staff services. He says the ambulance companies would also be on better financial footing if the state's Medicaid Medicaid reimbursement rates were higher. Call says the payments for services do not reflect what is known as the cost of readiness. Everybody always says, what does it cost to do an ambulance call? Um, It isn't the cost of what it takes to take that call right now. It's the cost for the last six hours the ambulance has been sitting idle waiting to take the call also plays into that. He says the ambulance companies plan to ask Governor Hochul and the state legislature for better Medicaid reimbursement rates in 2024. And he says companies are also lobbying the federal government for a better rate of reimbursement from Medicare. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. And thanks to Karen DeWitt and New York Public News Network for that report. Now, ProPublica is an independent nonprofit newsroom producing investigative journalism and a new investigation by ProPublica finds when a farm worker is injured or dies on a small Catskills or New York dairy farm, federal labor safety investigators often look the other way. In New York State, OSHA, the Federal Occupational Safety and Health Administration, is actually barred from looking into injuries and deaths on farms that have fewer than 11 workers. Many local dairy farms are that size or even smaller, 
The exception is if the workers are deemed in a temporary labor camp. But ProPublica reporter Melissa Sanchez told New York Public Radio's David Summerstein that because the majority of New York dairy workers are Mexicans or Central Americans who are undocumented, that definition is a gray area. A lot of people, including the bosses of OSHA, have interpreted them to mean um, a type of housing provided by an employer for a worker on a seasonal or temporary basis. And and I think traditionally we've thought of that as housing for migrant farm workers, so people who follow crops and might, you know, in the 60s or 70s have lived in like barracks on the property that were often in horrible conditions. But the the and, and back when those laws were written, the dairy industry didn't look like it does today, and there weren't immigrant workers who lived on farms in a type of housing. But it has this exemption for small farms. I guess like a big question in your reporting was why housing size is even a consideration and what that has to do with the death of a farm worker. Shouldn't any death be investigated by federal investigators? I mean, I would hope so, but it's not the case in much of the country. It's not. I mean, we should say that not every state relies on federal OSHA to do this. So there's states that have their own OSHA programs and those states can supplement the funds and inspect deaths and injuries regardless of the number of workers. So that's the case. You know, what's what's really well known is like the West Coast has a much stronger uh, OSHA program. So California, Washington, Oregon, like there can be as few as one worker on a farm and the state's OSHA will investigate that death or injury. But in a lot of the country like Wisconsin or New York or Vermont, where there's also a significant number of dairy farms, like that's not the case. And I think a lot of safety advocates would say, yes, <laughs> this should change. This isn't, this isn't fair. It's like a worker can die, like just across the border from, you know, from one state to another and, and one death will be investigated and, and one isn't. And I, I think this law was, this, this exemption was put into place to protect the small farmer from, from like, Overregulation. I think as a country, we really romanticize the small farm. It's like part of like the American ideal. And I think farms just look different than they did than they do now. It was a lot of farmers and their kids, and maybe occasionally they'd have like some high school kids over the summer or at night pick up a shift. But it wasn't it wasn't what you see today. Right now, a lot of farms these days, they it will still be a small farm, maybe just five or six workers, but they're all immigrants, they're all undocumented, they live on the farm. And, and farmers have just, just rely on them to pick up extra shifts. To, you know, they're, they're, cows are milked three times a day. I mean, I, I think farms just rely on outside labor in a way that they didn't when the, the law was created. That's very much the situation here in New York State um, on small dairy farms and on large dairy farms. Uh, farmers say, you know, they wouldn't be able to survive with uh, immigrant workers who come and they're almost all undocumented. Um what did your reporting find about how uh, OSHA handles deaths here in New York State and what the biggest concerns are there? What's happening in New York is similar in terms of the the accidents, the deaths, the injuries and and the and the situation where, where people live at work in New York, too. So I, I think 80 plus percent of immigrant dairy workers in New York live on on the farms you know either on site or an employer provided housing nearby which is which is the case you know in in a lot of these states 
But OSHA in New York, so while in Wisconsin, we found example after example after example of OSHA coming in and saying, if the employer provides housing to these workers, that should be considered a temporary labor camp because the workers have permanent homes back in their home country, usually Mexico. And they and there's kind of an understanding when they got hired that they might come and go to visit their families. But OSHA has very explicitly said it would not consider employer-provided housing in New York to be a temporary labor camp if employers offered their, their workers a job on a, quote, permanent basis. And, and so that's complicated because a, a farmer can easily say, well, I offered this work permanently to my worker. But the worker, I, I mean, I don't know, like our perspective and what we've, what we've heard from, from, from academics and, you know, lawyers and other people is, I mean, the, the worker can't be permanent if they're undocumented, if, they're, if their variability to stay in this country is, is, is precarious. So, but, but OSHA in New York has said, nope, that's not the case. They, these aren't temporary labor camps, and therefore we cannot inspect the small farm. So the small farm exemption applies. People saw case after case of somebody getting hurt or, or getting killed, and an OSHA saying, you know, hands up, I can't do anything, I'm limited. And and as a result, folks just don't call OSHA when people get hurt in in states like New York, and and so you you just have this entire class of people on I'm assuming hundreds if not thousands of, of farms on in in New York that don't think there's any help available to them if if they get hurt on the job. What is your what is your reporting tell you, and what do you hope you know comes of it in terms of you know the regulations on dairy farms for mostly undocumented immigrant laborers? I think with OSHA, there's clearly an inconsistency here, and it doesn't have to be this way. If OSHA found a way to check in on farms after somebody got seriously hurt or somebody died in one state, then OSHA, it's the same OSHA, it should hopefully be able to do the same thing somewhere else. And and so far, we haven't heard any response. We've heard some rum- grumblings from like activists or advocates in different parts of the country that that want OSHA to be more clear about what's happening. OSHA declined interview requests. They basically told us we are consistent. We follow our definitions. And they pointed us to the definitions that different people within the same agency like had different interpretations of. But but we 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 hope there can be some more consistency and like that hopefully OSHA would err on the side of covering more workers, protecting more workers than fewer workers. Melissa Sanchez is the reporter from the nonprofit investigative newsroom ProPublica. She spoke with New York Public Radio's David Summerstein. You can read her investigation about the federal labor safety investigators' response to deaths on dairy farms on our website, wjffradio.org. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, the latest news from the Sullivan County Democrat and update on the Sullivan County budget. Stay with us. You're listening to The Local Edition, winner of Excellence in Broadcasting Awards from the New York State Broadcasters Association. Radio Catskill. Listen local. Support for Radio Catskill comes from the Neversink General Store, featuring deli sandwiches, gourmet specials, and catering. The NeversinkGeneralStore.com. From The River Reporter the community newspaper covering four counties in Pennsylvania and New York along the Upper Delaware River. RiverReporter.com And from listeners like you 
who donate at wjffradio.org. This is Radio Catskill with the forecast for our listening area. Cloudy this evening, partial clearing in the overnight and cold with a low down to 19. Cloudy tomorrow with snow likely in the afternoon, high around 35. Periods of snow tomorrow afternoon could add up to 1 to 3 inches of accumulation, possibly more in higher elevations. And rain may follow the snow. Rain and snow tomorrow evening turns to rain on the late end with overnight low down to 32. This is Radio Catskill. Listen local. Why, hello, it's Cassie from the Rare Pair Radio Show. Uh, the Saturday after Thanksgiving from 10 to 3 p.m. is Radio Catskill's annual music sale. Saturday, November 25th, 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. It's actually in a new location, the Liberty Mall in Liberty, New York. There'll be an assortment of vinyls, CDs, all kinds of stuff. Components, turntables, stereos, cash in Venmo is accepted. Admission, $5. And the proceeds go to Radio Catskill. So hope to see you there. Welcome back to the local edition. I'm your host, Jason Dole. Sullivan County just unveiled its 2024 tentative budget. And the county says it will be expanding services without a tax hike. With a $288 million budget focusing on fixing roads and bridges while tackling housing challenges in the county, Patricio Rabio spoke to Sullivan County Manager Josh Potosik earlier today. I think on the top line, I think a lot of what the general public comes to expect and appreciate is infrastructure and public safety, I think, come to mind. Again, we're building upon uh, some historic investments in our road and bridge infrastructure without having to borrow any money for the, for this current term, which is nice. Uh, and then on the public safety side, we have adding both in the DA, we are looking at increasing salaries there for for Brian to be able to recruit and retain talent. And then also on the sheriff's side, we're adding a, a couple, two brand new dispatcher positions we've never had or had but never been filled in, in my tenure that will allow road patrol deputies that are now manning the phones to be on the street protecting the public. So those something coming from a public safety and, and DPW, public works infrastructure. I think we're filling out the ranks there and, and trying to Make sure we keep those things on the forefront of most people's minds fully funded. This one thing that caught my eye also was the $23.6 million that's going to be used for roads and bridges. But it's being done without borrowing money. How is that possible? I think it's been over the course of the years. When I first started here, we were uh, 15, 16, 17 years ago. It was a struggle to um, even pave roads. And at that time, we were borrowing money um, more frequently than we should have. So I think over time, just as we gotten um, our financial house in order, so to speak. Um, that's obviously been one of the number one priorities is to be able to address our infrastructure without going into debt. So a lot of our extra um, sales tax and extra um, revenue sources that we've realized, that's probably been the number one priority right off the bat from this legislature is to make sure we're doing completing all our road and bridge projects without having to borrow money. I think that was laid out pretty clearly um, four years ago from of the, the current board, and then that's been carried out through this term. And hopefully something that never goes away to the future where we get back to where we're borrowing for roads and bridges. But I think it's just been set from day one as that's a priority, and we have to stop borrowing money um, for something we have to do every year. Another thing that sort of caught my eye was this uh, housing trust fund. Can you clarify the, how the $2 million for housing trust fund will help with the housing problem we have in Sullivan County and what exactly it would be used for? So not unlike um, our neighbors in the Mid-Hudson and New York State, but across the country, um, housing availability and affordability have become um, one of our bigger problems um, that we, we're facing. 
Um, and that's all up and down. This isn't just affordable housing, but it, it's up and down the, the uh, spectrum of housing affordability. Housing trust funds exist, and Ulster County mm-hmm. has just created one, and Dutch has created one that mirrors a housing trust. But what a housing trust would do is uh, find a dedicated revenue stream that would um, be dedicated to th- that very issue to address the housing availability and affordability um, crisis that we're facing today. The county has completed a housing study with an outside consultant, and that had some I think three major recommendations in it. The housing trust, I mean, the new legislature will have to determine how they, from a policy perspective, think that those, that $2 million will be best spent. Um, but it can do anything from new construction to renovating apartments. Um, what would happen is the county would, um, solicit from, we're not going to be the ones constructing housing as a county government, but we would be partnering with not for profit entities that would then use that housing trust fund money to leverage other pots of money and be the ones that are actually um, doing the renovation or construction. What the county is able to do in those partnerships is to put restrictions um, on whether it's a sale or rent that they would be able to charge for a period of time. So if they took public money, we could mandate that a certain percentage of those units had to be at market rate or lower. Yeah. Or So there's a whole host of ways that the legislature can do that. But um, I think our, our housing study talked about that. Well, if we're going to incentivize a for-profit company or not-for-profit, then they have to keep rents and, and housing at an affordable rate. Yeah, no, definitely. It's absolutely. As you know, I said, it's a definitely dire need here in the Catskills in Sullivan County, uh, especially with the housing uh, market the way it is. I was just looking over last night and you're getting ready for this interview about uh, over the digital budget book. And according to you, According to the, to the county, it, it makes it easier for people to understand the budget. So can you explain exactly what's the digital budget and how it, does it help explain the budget to folks? Yes, for the past several years, we've been participating in the Government Finance Officers Association budgeting program where we received awards. It, when I first started, the budget book was literally just a, a book full of numbers um, without really any explanation or narrative. So that's what we've gone toward. Um, we have, so we have read two books. We have a detail, which pretty much still is all just numbers for the most part, but we have an executive summary that's what on the, the digital budget book, which is more interactive, narrative driven. There's numbers, obviously, but there's a lot of descriptors and explanations on the budget and how we got to the budget timeframes, um, how we budget, um, the budget process. Even just programs. So if there's an apartment, it's just not expenses and revenues. They'll have a narrative. What's their mission? What are their goals for the year? What is the new funding that they have new funding going to um, address or new positions? And then now on the, the digital side, which is our second year, it, it's more interactive for someone using so they can drill down into certain accounts or departments that they're interested in learning more about um, versus just leaping through a, 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 a budget book that's in paper. So then our goal has been more um, open and transparent with the budget process. It, it, municipal budgeting isn't always easy, so the, the more we can make it an easier document to read. And we're adding stuff every year. Every year we try to add new things um, um, or make things easier for the general public to understand. Um, it, like I said, it's not necessarily there's a $280 million budget and hundreds of pages of accounts and expenses So it's and revenue, so it's not easy if you don't have the time to spend. So I think what we're trying to do is be able to hand something off that someone that doesn't have a whole lot of time can really 
spend some time and, and understand what's happening at the county government level. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like, like I said, it could be daunting. Uh, just even like a local town budget and just can imagine it being expanded to a county budget and just looking through it, like budget overview uh, links that you have here, priorities and issues and budget calendar and budget timeline is a lot, a lot of the questions that a lot of people have. So it's really great stuff that makes it, exactly that makes it easier for the general public to understand the budget. And another thing uh, as the budget I want to talk about is the budget suggests hiring more people in different departments. What do you mean by that? Not dissimilar from the housing issue. I think we're, we're, all struggling through um, um, a very tight labor market. Um, um, and so county governments, well, we're municipal employ- workers, we're competing with not-for-profits, private sector, and a whole host of areas, whether it's IT, accounting, healthcare. Um, so we've done a few things. I mean, one, we, we have all of our union contracts settled for the next two and three years, which has helped with some salaries and, and be able to re- recruit and ret- retain talent. Um, we have an RFP out today that the budget would would fund is to look at certain departments, like I mentioned, healthcare, IT, where it's, it's, you're competing with a very small um, talent pool in the area. And you, if you're not competitive on wages, you're most likely not going to be able to hire in certain of those titles. There's money in there to be able to do that, to be able to look at those certain areas where, where we have vacancies and it's very hard to fill. We have funding, um, which we're very proud to provide the, as much education and training that, that we can for employees. Actually, as, as we speak today, there's ongoing training for management and supervisors that's being carried over into next year. And then we have a pretty robust education tuition reimbursement program that we've instituted, along with working with we, we pay pretty much for free county employees that want to go take classes at SUNY Sullivan. So I think we've been doing a lot. We've recently partnered with Marist College to provide some graduate programs at half cost, uh, half of the cost that they would normally charge. So I think there's a whole host of things we're trying to do. And you have to get a little innovative and can't just assume you're going to have tens or twenties of amount of people applying for jobs like they used to pre-pandemic. So we've gotten innovative both on the education and training side, but also adding positions in certain areas where we know we need help. But I think that those other ancillary things are just as important as the positions themselves. If you're not at the forefront of attracting talent, retaining talent, you're going to be uh, left behind. Now, there's two formal public hearings uh, for the proposed 2024 county budget. They are set for Tuesday, December 5th at 5.30 and Thursday, December 7th at 10.30. Both will be held at the Government Center in Monticello. Josh, before we go, is there anything else I have not touched on? Do you want folks to know about the budget? No, I think it's we're here to we're here to serve. And if there's any questions or comments, or we're more than welcome to entertain them and try to answer your questions or about the budget. So I think that's it. We we're talking to the Sullivan County Manager Josh Potosik, talking about the tentative 2024 budget happening. Now I said two public hearings are coming up on the fifth and then the seventh. Thank you so much, Josh, for talking to us. Let us know about the budget. I appreciate it. Anytime. All right, and happy Thanksgiving, Josh. You as well. Okay, and thank you, Patricio. And finally, here, uh, wrapping up our Monday evening, on Mondays we check in with Sullivan County Democrat for our weekly news roundup to see what's making news, what's going on in the county, everything that's coming up in tomorrow's edition of the Sullivan County Democrat. Patricio Rabio spoke with Sullivan County Democrat editor Derek Kirk earlier today, and Derek starts off talking about the enrollment being up at SUNY Sullivan. So according to the research recently released by the SUNY System Admin Office of Institutional Research and Data Analytics, SUNY Sullivan had the highest increase of first-time enrollment for all community colleges across the SUNY state colleges from fall 2022 to fall 2023 with about a 20.3% increase. 
and leadership at the college was obviously quite happy with uh, this prominent jump in stature and status for the college. It beat out its nearest competitor, Onondaga, SUNY Onondaga, by 20, or they, excuse me, it beat out its challenger, SUNY Onondaga, by 0.3%, who ended up having a 20%, which officer in charge, Casey Crable, noted humorously that beating out Onondaga was a sweet change of pace, as that was her former employer. And speaking of the officer in charge, the the college is also ramping up its presidential search after the position was made vacant by the last acting president of the college, Jay Quaintance. So more can be expected to see from leadership changes for the college coming up soon. Yeah, it definitely is welcome news, except before that the enrollment was down across the board on SUNY Sullivan and SUNY's colleges. And I said the search is still going ongoing for the new a new president for SUNY Sullivan. In your next story here, you have some uh, an article about the New York State Office for the Aging, or is this for the Sullivan County Office for the Aging? This is for the New York State Office for the Aging, who recognized a number of individuals, 91 to be exact, individuals across 55 counties in New York State. And two of those individuals were from Sullivan County. They were picked out, and they were Jack Luster and Karen Pintel. They were noted by the state as well as by the local Office for the Aging in Sullivan County for their volunteerism, their hard work, their dedication to the community, their steadfast in their steadfastness in giving back to the people. So more can be read on those two individuals, Jack Luster and Karen Pintel, on the front page of Tuesday's edition of the Sullivan County Democrat. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Congratulations to those both being recognized by the state and those are from Sullivan Counties. And another story here you work on, I see a lot of action on social media about, and it's a story I you know, know because I interviewed um, the superintendent not too long ago about the new logo um, at Liberty Central School District. Just to remind folks that the logo had to be changed uh, due to a state mandate, and it was because the old logo was insensitive to Native Americans, indigenous people here in the United States. Now this seems to be another change happening to the logo, and it was unexpected. What can you tell us, Derek? Absolutely. It seemed out of the blue, the Liberty Central School District announced earlier this last, late last week that the Red Hawk logo was going to be discontinued effective immediately. And the logo, they had told, was just an, uh, announced to the public only a month ago. The superintendent of the school district, Dr. Patrick Sullivan, noted that the district is currently in the process of removing all the logos that are now discontinued from any district-owned properties. And that can include flags, banners, sports jerseys, signs, and and much more. The superintendent noted that all the sales of merchandise containing that discontinued logo have been halted. It is not exactly clear how much this might cost the district to redo their logo once again, and there's not a timeline that has been set forth by the school district. So we're waiting to see if that will come in sooner rather than later. For now, the Red Hawks will be sporting their Block L logo. A lot of the chatter that I hear online is about the cost of this happening. There was a large cost that the state didn't cover for the logo change. And now that we had to remove whatever was in place already, I'm just curious what's... I'm, not, I'm sure you don't have the answer right now, but I'm curious to see later on down the road what the cost will be uh, for this little snack food that happened. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll keep a close eye on it. It was unsure. I I'm, would have to go back to remember the exact 
pricing that they did for the now discontinued logo, maybe that would be a sign as to what how much this would cost to do it again. But we'll definitely find out more and report on that when it comes out. Yeah, definitely has to be redesigned, approved and all that. All right. We're talking on Thanksgiving week and Thanksgiving is four days away, three days, four days away. We're Monday, it's Thursday, right? Four days away. Yeah, four days away. And as always, the Democrat does a great Thanksgiving salute. So what is in store for this year's Thanksgiving salute for the Democrat? Absolutely. So for our Thanksgiving salute, our annual special section we put together in the paper, we have notes on bringing food safety to the holiday dinner table, being cautious of all the things that come with uh, proper cooking, cleaning utensils, cooking time to make sure you undercook your meals, along with the essential gear Thanksgiving hosts would need. Uh, A lot of first-time hosts this year might find some helpful tips in that special section, as well as a nod to the Federation for the Homeless, who are also prepping for the holiday season. So more can be found on their schedule and what they'll be giving out to those in need and their plans for the future coming up. That's one thing about the holidays. The need is there all year round. And obviously, the holidays, especially around Thanksgiving, is when we focus on folks with food insecurity. But it's like I said, it's a need all year round. Absolutely. And we just want to wish from the paper, everyone, a happy and healthy Thanksgiving. Definitely, definitely. And to you too, Derek, thank you so much for everything. I'm thankful for you coming on every Monday and telling us about the stories on the page of the Sullivan County Democrat. We're talking to the editor for the Sullivan County Democrat, Derek Kurt, letting us know what's happening on the pages of the Sullivan County Democrat on newsstands tomorrow, or you can check them online at scdemocratonline.com. Derek, as always, talk to you next week and happy Thanksgiving. Thank you so much. Happy great Thanksgiving. Thank you, Patricio. Thank you, Derek. And thank you, listener, for listening to the local edition right here on Radio Catskill. I've been your host, Jason Dole. That's going to do it for our program. Do keep on listening at WJFFradio.org or ask your smartphone, your smart device, your smart speaker to play Radio Catskill. You can also listen to us on air wherever you find us. We're glad that you're here with us. And I also ask that you remember that our music sale is coming up on Saturday. That's it for tonight. We'll be back again tomorrow night. This is Radio Catskill. WJFF Jeffersonville, New York, W233 